In this edition of the Future to Work podcast, I sat down with Humphrey Lloyd, member and former treasurer of the Land Workers Alliance and owner of Edible Futures, a small urban farm here in Bristol. We discussed organising the new economy, food sovereignty and what the future of work means to the food sector. Recorded live in his polytunnel on a sunny spring afternoon, I asked Humphrey how he came to become an urban farmer. So I come from an urban background, grew up in South London, uh, went to university. I'm not in any way of agricultural stock. Um, I've come to food and farming really from an an environmental and political uh, angle. Mm -hmm. Um, Combination of those two things led me to wanting to set up a small farm business, uh, which I started to do now eight years ago here in Bristol. Um, I originally set up on a site belonging to the council in Brislington Mm -hmm. and then I think it's now five years ago I relocated to this site here in Feed Bristol um, in Frenchay and here I have been since then running this small farm business called Edible Futures which is a community supported agriculture project producing both uh, vegetables, cut herbs and salads for Mm -hmm. the Bristol market. So how does that work? So does it is it kind of local people sort of buy into it and they get deliveries? Is that sort of ha- when you say community mm. sort of supported? Okay, so we essentially have two inc- we have two uh, routes to market. Um, the first is through wholesale directly to cafes and restaurants, mm-hmm. uh, and the second is the CSA scheme, the Community Sports Agriculture Scheme, and that's called Salad Drop. Mm-hmm. So the way that works is we have fifty odd households that pay a weekly subscription, and they get a bag of salad once a week. Now, it's the CSA in that the weekly subscription, they pay 52 weeks a year. Hmm. They pay all year. And they only get salad for 44 weeks a year. So, in a subtle way, it's not just a market relationship. Hmm. It's a relationship of support and solidarity as well as one of, um, you know, buying the produce. Mm-hmm. So, Edible Futures is, is kind of a, a, a part of a, of a larger plot here of Feed Bristol. So, can you tell me a little bit about the overall hmm. kind of area? So this particular small holding is a seven acre small holding. It belongs to the council. It's what's called a county small holding, which is a bit like a council house in a way um, for the farm sector. Um, and a conservation organisation called Avon Wildlife Trust actually have the lease for the site. Now Avon Wildlife Trust have a kind of remit of social engagement and showcasing what they call wildlife friendly farming or wildlife friendly gardening mm-hmm. on this site. Um, However, there's basically too much land for them to manage on their own, so they have brought in what they call land shares or land partners, of which we are, Edible Futures is one, Mm -hmm. to help manage the land. So through that relationship, they've effectively subletted me, Edible Futures, an acre and a half in order to run a business here. And there are other partners too. Sims Hill, uh, Upcycle Mushrooms, um, Hedro Apothecary, I can't pronounce that word, (laughs) Hedro Apothecary, I believe it is, and a few others. Nice. And so... To go back to what you were saying about how you kind of originally got into farming, you said there was social, political issues. Talk me through sort of mm. those. Um, so my original motivation for um, essentially becoming a farmer um, was not because I was particularly practical, particularly good with my hands, uh, particularly into working outside or any of these <laughs> things, but more kind of looking at the various problems we face as a global society, primarily climate change, but other ones as well, for example, unemployment. And... Um, trying to think of practical ways to try and solve some of these problems Mm. and in a country like the UK that's had an industrial food system for longer than any other actually reintegrating people with food and farming resetting up small-scale farms that supply directly to cities Mm -hmm. um, essentially produce a host of benefits both environmental economic and social Mm. and so I kind of then when you're the combination of those kind of thoughts and thinking what am I practically going to do 
do with my life and <laughs> how am I going to earn a living, yeah. kind of led me to the thought of having a farm business. Hmm. And why specifically urban farming? Um, okay, so one of the major things that we've lost from our um, agricultural sector is the peri-urban or the suburban market garden. Hmm. So I was born in 1985. In my lifetime, suburban market gardens have declined by a third. Right. Okay. Right. Um, that obviously goes hand in hand with a increase in, in imports of horticultural produce. You know, we're now up to 80% imports of fresh fruit into this country. Um, so it's not the only issue facing Britain's food system and food supply, but it's one. Hmm. And so um, trying to reset up peri-urban market gardens or suburban market gardens that produce high quality, nutrient dense fruits and vegetables that we don't eat enough of, most of us, and supply them directly to urban consumers is a nice it's a nice practical way of solving one issue in our food system right yeah now if we're going to want to move on then from from sort of your history of farming to around uh, organizing and mm. and you're the treasurer right of the land workers alliance and no longer actually but i was for a long time right but you're still connected yeah 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 um so let's think about um the land workers alliance kind of what is it mm. uh, what's the history of it why was it kind of set up um, and then later we'll talk about why it's important now but yeah so the Land Workers Alliance is a trade it's a it's like a cross between a trade union and a campaign group mm. okay to advocate for the political interests of small-scale farmers and to campaign for a better food system mm -hmm. okay um, it originated in 2012 um, here in the UK as a result of a, co of a collaboration of different small-scale food, f fuel and fibre producers who kind of looked at the political landscape of farming in Britain and said there's a massive civil society gap for a trade union and a campaign group to advance small-scale and sustainable farming. Right, yeah. Kind of the political landscape is really dominated by the National Farmers Union which is really not so much a union as an employers association that is very pro-GM that is very anti-social and environmental legislation, um, is very pro the export market, etc. These things aren't all wholesale bad, but definitely if you look at the political landscape, there's a massive gap for an organisation to represent agroecology and a more progressive food system to do with food sovereignty. Hmm. So that's the kind of like, that's where the LWA, the Land Works Alliance, comes from. Um, and so we kind of looked at the UK and thought, there's this massive gap for an organisation like ours and so we decided to develop our develop ourselves on traditional trade union lines so mm. what that means is recruiting members mm. and working in solidarity with other small scale farmers to produce a coherent vision of a better food system yeah. um, a food system that's more based around agroecology and sustainable farming um, increasing food self-sufficiency in, in this country um, more supplying local markets um and a kind of a, a farm sector that produces quality and high-paid jobs. So when you say the the members, so the members to be a member, mm. you've got to be a sort of small-scale farmer. Is that kind of defined by by size, or rather your own identification? Or it's defined by a set of principles. Yeah. So to become a member of the Landworks Alliance, you have to be a food producer, um, and you have to subscribe to the principles of food sovereignty. Right. And that's kind of it. Mm -hmm. there, are, there are slightly more detailed specifications on our website if you choose to look at them but essentially it's about being a farmer who is in line with food sovereignty and agroecology mm 
Okay, and then sorry, on, on food sovereignty, mm. yeah, sort of ex- explain that to me. Okay, so conceptually, food sovereignty is normally explained as taking control of the food system. Mm-hmm. To be honest, my experience, when you say that to people, it feels a bit jargonistic <laughs> and it's not very clear what people mean, so I'll sort of unpack that a bit for you. Um, but to do that, we probably need to jump into an international context mm. for a second. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Comes out later. No, 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 let's get to that, yeah. Um, so, food sovereignty as a kind of movement has emerged historically in the 1990s. Okay? It's emerged from peasant communities in the global south kind of responding to being incorporated into an increasingly neoliberal global economy mm. that's had negative impacts on their food economies. Yeah? For example, investments in land that have deprived them in land. Yeah? Um, incursions of hybrid and GM seeds into their traditional farming systems. Mm. Um, a domination of the export market of their previously more um, self-subsistence and resilient farm-based economies. Mm. Um, and essentially, like peasant communities got together in the 1990s to say, look, we are, we are suffering from common problems here, mm. and we have a common objection, and our common objection is that we want to be able to define our own food and farming systems, okay? We don't want those decided by international trade agreements, mm by foreign corporations, or even by national governments. We as food and farming communities have the right to decide how food and farming is done in our communities. Mm. Um, so when we say food sovereignty is about saying taking control of the food system, that's sort of what it means. Right, yeah. It's peasants saying, we don't use the word peasant in Britain, but it's, it's peasants or farmers saying, uh, we're the ones who should be saving our own seeds. Mm. We're the ones who should be determining where we get the inputs for our farms, be it compost, manure, etc. Um, we're the ones who should be dominate, who should be controlling where we sell our food. We're the ones who should have some input into national food policy. Mm. Yeah, all these things. You know, the poorest people in society, farmers, agricultural workers, should at least have some stake in. Mm. Um, so that's kind of what food sovereignty kind of means conceptually, and then it became a political movement in the 1990s, as defined by La Via Campesina, which means the way of the peasant in Spanish. Um, and so food sovereignty kind of became uh, became the main project of Via Campesina. Mm. It's the it's the term used for peasant peasant communities saying, "This is how we want food food and farming to go forwards." Mm. So, so LWA is a member La Via Campesina. Mm. Like, is that how kind of how it works? Is that the is that then the the global body, and then LWA is like the kind of the the UK representative, or yeah, basically. So the Land Workers Alliance is a national based union mm. campaign group, but we're affiliate members of La Via Campesina. Yeah. So La Via Campesina has affiliate members in seventy countries, seventy odd countries globally. Yeah. Bringing together actually about two hundred million farms and farm workers which is an extraordinary number and so uh, the LWA in the UK is one is one of those branches Mm. so just sorry to go back to Mm. the thing you're talking about also about the the National Farmers Union Mm. um, which is kind of always been an unusual term anyway because it's a farmers union but as you say it's actually really more an employer association rather than farmer union as we might traditionally think so what's kind of the relationship if any between the LWA and the NFU, or is it very much like an arm's length, almost campaigning for different things? Um, we're very small fry compared to the NFU. Mm. The the LWA now has in the region of a thousand members. Mm. The NFU has fifty thousand. Yeah. 
Um, historically, they've been on the scene as a major player since the 1930s, and we have since 2012. Mm. Okay. Um, essentially, our relationship is that we, the, between the two of us, is that we put out different things in the media. Mm. They will say one thing about a piece of legislation, we will say another. Yeah. Um, other than that, we have had, yeah, we've had some interaction, but not that much, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would be lying if I'd say that the NFU feels threatened by members leaving the NFU and coming to the LWA. Right, yeah, yeah. But very much, you know, our politics is defined very differently. Yeah. Um, and... Yeah, it's like we're, we are offering very different things to the agricultural sector, really. Mm. So how do you kind of like organise differently then? So if you've got these set of principles that you mm. want to promote and, as you say, trying to affect kind of na national agricultural policy being a key important part of, of the movement, mm. so how does LWA sort of organise and uh, exercise its power? Um, so I normally describe it as having, it's kind of like three roles. There's kind of three levels to it. Mm. At one level, it's about solidarity between farmers, doing social events, having farm walks, doing mm. farm hacks, which is a kind of like, um, it's, it's kind of a term for doing workshops on farms about farming. Yeah. So it's kind of like social grassroots movement building together as farmers, which not only upskills us, but also makes us feel part of a social movement and makes us feel solidarity with other farmers and farm workers, mm. which for a, for a sector that is largely rural and a lot of people feel you know, are geographically isolated and often feel very on their own. This stuff is actually very important. Yeah. So there's that sort of grassroots movement building, which obviously has a direct implication on membership because people become members if they've been to an interesting skill share, for yeah, example. Yeah, yeah. So there's that level. And then there's a kind of like level of ideas, which is kind of operates mainly in the media. So, um, so we put out stuff not only on social media, but also through the farming press. That's obviously it depend on every press release, but essentially the, the, con the, the basis of it is to try and challenge the idea that small-scale and agroecological farming is backwards, inefficient, and belongs to the past. And rather, we're putting out the message that small-scale and agroecological farming are progressive, are environmentally sound, are exactly what we need to be doing if we want to not only increase food production and uh, increase um, decent farm jobs, but also doing those in line with our biodiversity and climate crisis. Mm. Um, so there's kind of like challenging perceptions around small-scale farming. And then there's a national level, which is about lobbying and campaigning. Mm. And that's obviously something that the NFU does as well. Um, you know, until recently, the NFU's head office was two doors away from the DEFRA, Department for Food and Rural Affairs, in Smith Square in London. Yeah. And that's kind of all you need to know about <laughs> the uh, political influence of DEFRA, really, yeah. of um, the yeah. NFU. And so... Obviously, with a much smaller budget, which and with much less means, but we are also doing also doing the same thing of lobbying and creating a relationship with government in order to affect um, agricultural policy. Which, because of Brexit and the and the massive sort of political window that's opened up, and we're going on food and farming has come on leaps and bounds in the last two years. Yeah, because I was going to say, how is like I mean. Um, especially issues around climate change it's definitely become more part of the kind of dominant narrative I mean Extinction Rebellion's happening today and today. yeah, yeah. Um, so do you feel like and also you mentioned Brexit maybe to bring in Brexit as well like uh, have you felt you called this a political opportunity um, sort of how have you been able to seize these things then? Um, 
Okay, so Brexit. Yeah, sorry, kind of two separate yeah, questions. Two separate yeah. things. Let's do the Brexit one first. Yeah. And what was the other one then? And then around kind of more, um, have you found uh, in the last few years a lot more kind of, uh, uh, kind of almost consumer support, more support mm, because mm. of um, the the narrative around climate change changing? Mm. Um, have you found that that's provided quite a lot of extra power for you to exercise and stuff like that? Mm. Okay, well, to answer that first, like. My experience is that there has been a general upsurge in consumer and civil society interest in food, mm. okay? Where food comes from um, and how food is produced. Now, I think it's people are m- more concerned really with, with food from a health angle. Yeah. But that does feed in and does support agroecology actually and small scale farming. Mm. But um, I think most consumers are more concerned about food because, A, because of health, and as a secondary thing, because of where it's come from and how it's produced, mm. um, th- and those things very, are, like are tangible, have tangible positive impacts for people who want to produce food uh, in a sustainable way and supply local markets. Mm. Um, I couldn't nail down any specific things that have happened in recent years, but that, my sense is there is a general upsurge in that interest. Mm. Now, saying the thing that I think most people are concerned about health, there's a dimension to it that is, is. It's quite individualistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, a lot, and you know, a lot of the way people think about politics and campaigning now is often, it's often quite individualistic, and often comes down to individual consumption habits, mm. um, which is okay, but it's definitely not the whole story. And so, like, as f- farmers and food workers trying to organise and trying to create a better food system, quite often we're trying to say, yes, ethical consumption is important. Yes, join your local CSA, for example. Yes, buy you know fair trade tea when you're in the supermarket, mm. but if you think that's the whole story, that's kind of quite problematic. Mm. Um, and so, my set my sense this there's still work to be done on galvanising people's sort of like interest in food in terms of their own personal health, and then pushing it on to being like, well, how about you know become an affiliate member of the Landworks Alliance, for example, mm. to show solidarity with farmers, and that those are kind of connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So rather having more of a kind of just purely relying on on people, almost their preferences. Yeah, their and, indiv- and indiv- the market. Yeah, and the market. Yeah, and because I mean, you mentioned stuff around there, around stuff to do with labelling, for example, mm. and like relying perhaps just on consumers who buy fair trade or not buy fair trade and stuff like that doesn't seem like a necessarily a, a long term kind of aspiration mm. or whatever. It's it's definitely got its value, but mm. it's is it's expressive of of us as a individualistic and sort of consumer fixated society. Yeah. Um, and it's just not the whole t- story if you're talking about changing the world. Yeah. And if you're more specifically talking about changing the food system, <laughs> yes, ethical consumption is a part of it, but it's only a part. Mm. And we also need to be changing the way we farm. We need to be changing national legislation. Mm. We need to be changing international trade agreements. Yeah. You know, it's one aspect of a whole suite of political solutions. Mm. So maybe then, on terms of political stuff, with Brexit, mm. then if we go back to that, so, so have you felt that Brexit has presented a particular opportunity for the farming sort of farming sector, or um, Brexit is a vast can of worms for everything, and it's a vast can of worms specifically for food and farming. Yeah. Um, we don't have all day, but to like <laughs> in a nutshell, it pulls us out of the common agricultural policy, yeah. um, which def- which um, just fell off my chair. <laughs> I was so excited about the. Um, <laughs> end of the common agricultural policy in Britain <laughs> I nearly fell off my chair back um, 
So it pulls out of the Common Agricultural Policy, which has defined food and farming policy in Britain since the 70s. Mm, yeah. Okay, So that means, crucially, the subsidy regime will change. Now, that is basically a positive thing, because the way that subsidies have come to be allocated, largely through Pillar 1 of the, of the Common Agricultural Policy, has been on an area basis. On an area basis. That's called the single farm payment, and it allocates a certain amount of money to farmers on how much land they own and manage. Mm. Um, about 200 quid per acre. Now, the implication of that is that the largest farms get the largest amount of money and it increases financialization of land and industrial farming. Yeah. Um, so, us being pulled out of that is basically a positive thing. And that's allowed civil society to say, hey, you should do it like this, hey, you should do it like this, hey, you mm. should do it like that. Um, and because Brexit's stalling, we don't quite know what's going to happen, but probably the um, way subsidies will be allocated will be what's through what's going to be called environmental land management schemes, which will basically be a whole range of conservation measures. Right. Now, it's not exclusively positive, and there's a real danger that will lead to a lot of farmers stopping being farmers and being conservation workers, mm. um, which will ha basically have an impact on food production. Food production will probably reduce. So it's not, it's not entirely positive, but it's definitely a more just and sensible way of allocating subsidies mm. than doing it just by the biggest farms get the most amount of money yeah and it presents an opportunity to propose alternatives exactly yeah and th and that's what i mean by saying it's created a political window yeah and so in that political window the land works alliance among all among other organizations have been able to get their oar in so for example you know we've been um campaigning for an agroecology amendment to the agriculture bill that will probably go through if the if brexit happens and the agriculture bill is passed mm. that wouldn't have happened without brexit um yeah. yeah. So, so that's sort of one concrete example. There are other there are other things about our relationship with Europe. For example, um, the pig swill ban or um, uh, regulation of pesticides and genetically modified organisms and things like this that have been defined by Europe and will no longer be so. Mm. Um, and Britain has to come up with its own policy about them. Now. A lot of them are really quite worry, worrisome, yeah. like GMOs, for example, and agricultural chemicals and pesticides. The UK is, is much more relaxed about these things than Europe. Yeah. So if you come from a, um, a reg, like if you come from a position of being concerned about the environment, concerned about labour rights and regulation of um, environmental stuff to do with the environment, like chemicals, it's really quite worrisome because probably the direction of policy will be to deregulate. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and also dependent upon the government that we have in place at the time as well. <laughs> yeah, um, it will be dependent on the government that we have in place at the time, and the fact that we have a Tory government now that is opposed to regulation and in mind of austerity is particularly worrisome. But even you know, if you look at our longer track record in Europe, as a, the UK's track record in Europe has been to advocate against regulation mm. for most stuff. And so us pulling out of Europe will probably mean that we'll go more down a deregulation route. Mm. OK, then. So let's move um, away from kind of the politics stuff around to uh, maybe more kind of the sort of so social issues around work specifically. And kind of the focus of this podcast being the future of work, the futures of work, multiple ones out there. Um, how can we grasp the alternatives? Um, so... For, for you and in, in, in food and farming, mm. what do you think the future kind of holds for you in terms of in terms of the work? Okay, so there are various ways it can go. Obviously, I mean, 
I'll basically present two different scenarios, one being a bad one and one being a yeah. good one. <laughs> so there is a potential that we kind of continue along the same trajectory that we have been doing since about the 1930s, which is often called the productionist paradigm, hmm. or to kind of make it a bit more clear, it's a drive towards mechanization and larger farms, hmm. okay? Um, and that will include concentration of land, mm -hmm. reduction in farm jobs, and an increase in farm inputs, mm -hmm. petrochemical-based farm inputs. It's basically more industrial farming, but mm -hmm. on a bigger scale, a bit more like they have in the US. Yeah. That's one potential option. Specifically, your question in terms of labor, what that will mean is the amount of farm jobs reduces, already from a very low level, mm. about 1% of the population, yeah. 200,000 people, more or less. Yeah. Um, and also, those jobs will probably become more precarious and probably worse paid. Um, Mechanisation basically goes hand in hand with a reduction of, of wages. Yeah. Um, one si very simple contemporary example of that is the GPS tractor requires less skill than a tractor in which you have to drive it yourself. And, you know, being a, being a ploughman used to be a highly skilled job. Mm. The advent of GPS is a less skilled job and therefore the worker is easier to hire or fire. Mm. That's one, like, a specific example of that. Um, and there's really interesting stuff happening at the moment in terms of robotisation on farms, mm. which will probably increase that even more so. Mm. Um, so the Lee Harper Adams Institute, I think it's called. Or the Har no, it's called the Harper Adams Institute. Do you know that? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I University um, that's been doing a lot of research into and development of um, drones and um, and agricultural robots. Right. Um, they actually, interestingly, they just won the BBC Food and well, just it was last year. They won the BBC Food and Farming Awards uh, category <laughs> for innov innovative farming. Right. Which is really interesting because they just picked at the post a guy called John Letts, yeah. who's a developer of ancient grains. Um, so he's a developer of ancient and open populated grains. So without going too much into the plant science of it, this is basically a way of growing grains in which every blade of wheat in the field is genetically different. Right. Okay. It means your yield is a lot lower, but your resilience is vastly increased. Right, yeah, yeah. So in terms of like going forward into climate change, in which our priority should be resilience and reduction of uh, fossil fuels, it's, a pr it's, it's really changing the paradigm. Yeah. And it's interesting that he was actually beaten by people developing agricultural robots that spray chemicals and run on fossil fuels. Yeah. And so there's, there's almost a kind of like, um, it's almost symbolic in a way of the two different directions our food system could go. Mm. Um, and the guys developing the robots won it. Yeah. Um, anyway, like that was a massive tangent, but the implications of robotizing farming will again be to reduce farm labor basically mm. and make workers easier to hire and fire. Um, however, there is another, there's a sort of like counter narrative to that, mm. um, or an other potential sort of uh, scenario, which is an increase in agroecology. And just in terms of, there's lots of things to say about agroecology, and normally people talk about the environmental impacts, which are obviously very important, but more to talk about the labour. Yeah. Um, agroecology is inherently based on making farms smaller increasing the amount of labour per unit area and increasing production right. and production of food per unit area okay so on this farm for example it's one and a half acres yeah it's less than five times the size 
that you need to be to be a farm to qualify as a farm <laughs> right. in this country, yeah? Oh, so okay, to be included yeah. on the, in the UK yeah. Ag report, which you need to be five hectares, which is almost five times the size of this farm, okay? Despite that, we produce um, enough food for 50 households and 12 restaurants. So, and it, and it employs uh, 1.5 people, okay? So, um, th- this is just like one working case study of a high productivity, high labour input farm, mm. okay? Um, now, the way that agricultural economics is normally measured is to look at output from the farm in terms of food and divide it by the number of people. Right. And, and thereby they derive how efficient the farm is. Which is a great measure if you're interested it's purely in the economics, mm. yeah? Because if you sack 50%, so if you have a potato farm that produces 100 tonnes of potatoes but employs two people yeah. off 100 acres, yeah? And you sack one of the people, which means your wage bill reduces by 70%, and the following year you produce 70 tonnes of potatoes. By the standard agro. agro um, by the standard metric, your farm has become more efficient. Mm. Okay, but from a common sense perspective, or from a food sovereignty perspective, actually, it's better to produce more food and have more jobs, yeah. right? <laughs> and that's the kind of like labour case for agroecology. Mm. Right. I've gone on a massive tangent. There. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you want to ask anything to clarify? No, no. I think it, it makes sense in terms of that. There's a lot of it comes down to. Um, what opportunities can be seized? Mm. So I mean, for example, stuff around like agroecology. Mm. Uh, I mean, how do, how do you? How, almost, I know it's a bit of a big question, but how do you change the, the kind of conventional wisdom around agricultural economics that measures productivity in this particular way? Um, a lot of it is about producing good case studies and mm. us arguing our case. Mm. And so, you know, a concrete example is um, Rebecca Lawton reports produced a really good report called A Matter of Scale. Just looking into the productivity, both in terms of volume of food, but also in terms of employment, mm. of small-scale farms, um, and I think she defined it was small scale was defined by under twenty acres, right. um, and we've kind of been shouting about that politically and using mm. that as a lobbying tool, mm. you know, and hopefully the implications of that will then be policy that is more geared, that at least recognises the value of small-scale farming and ma- might, for example, make you eligible for a 20 grand funding pot mm. to build your barn or whatever yeah yeah, you know? yeah yeah um so basically making making the case for um making the economic case for for small-scale farming really. yeah so i mean in terms of like labor rights more more kind of specifically mm. i mean when you hear about typically around especially in the uk you're around food and labor mm. rights it's typically migrant laborers who have been abused in some deplorable conditions of work sometimes deaths etc like that I mean, do you ever find anything in this? Um, uh, what's your experience of it in terms of through the LWA? There's some horrible stories. Are there some real success stories where you've been able to kind of have some substantial improvements in conditions of work or anything like that? Um, so it kind of goes back to our question about the history of the LWA. Yeah. But like the the progress of the LWA so far has been about organising mainly small scale business self-employed business owners right, yeah. okay um, small-scale self-employed farmers now there's massive work to be done about teaming up now with the migrant work, with the agricultural labor sector hmm. um, and we've done this to an extent through communication with John Burgess f- for example from United the Union hmm. um, and his work with agricultural workers and we 
actually had a really productive meeting last year at Oxford Real Farming Conference with, um, uh, I forget his name, but somebody who had been organising with the McDonald's workers around the McDonald's strikes. Oh, right, yeah, the McDonald's But um, basically there's, there's a lot of productive work to be done to link up sm small-scale agroecological farmers and farm labourers and migrant workers mm. because we have the common interest of basically advancing more sustainable farming and better labour rights. Yeah. Um, the truth is it's yet quite an undeveloped relationship and it's something that we do need to do more work on developing. Hmm. And okay, to sort of jump into a slightly more academic frame for a sec, but yeah, like, yeah. Eric Hobsbawm has this wonderful take on the history of social change, which is all social change has to be ecumenical, by which he means it needs to bring different people together. Hmm. It needs to be intersectional. Okay? It can't just be farm workers banging on about stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's got to be a combination of various different interest groups and stakeholders. Mm. And so one example of that is small-scale farmers need to team up better with agricultural labourers and migrant labourers. And they need to team up with people working in the NHS who have noticed the impact of having a healthy diet, eating enough vegetables. Mm. Yeah? And they need to team up with people making agricultural policy, etc. You know, it's we're not going to change something as entrenched as, in, as the industrial food system if we don't bring in lots of different people from different walks of life mm. um, to create together a kind of a coherent argument about how the food system could be better as a whole. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of linked to what you were saying earlier about in terms of that there's people trying to do almost similar things but in like in different domains. It's quite so, silent, so people yeah. are trying to do stuff um, like if the work that I've done on, on tea and palm oil, people are trying to do stuff around like saving orangutans, for example, mm. and they'll go and do that. Mm. And that'll be the job of that organization to, to mm. do that, right? And then at the same time, you're like, well, there's also, yeah, a lot of migrant laborers in deplorable conditions of work. There's mm. child labor, there's mm. obviously the deforestation and stuff like that. And often people have their kind of, their own missions and purpose and stuff like that, but they're not linked together and don't necessarily see that kind of sort of international forms of solidarity or kind of cross-sectional forms of solidarity. Mm. So have you kind of found, um, so is that kind of something LWA is really trying to kind of... It's trying to develop it, but it's basically quite slow going and yeah. it's quite difficult, partly because of resources and time and all the rest of it, um, but partly because it's quite new ground. Yeah. Um, and it's something that, you know, Via Campesina has, has been doing a good job of um, internationally, is bringing, bringing different groups together and uniting them as one voice saying you know we want in the simplest possible terms food sovereignty yeah yeah as how that applies to hundreds of different countries yeah normally the kind of the last question we kind of finish on is around uh what individuals can do but we've already kind of had a discussion around well should it really all be about the mm. focus on individuals uh but a lot of my students listen to this podcast mm. so you know if they're interested in these kind of um aspects of what we've been talking about what can people do right okay like if we're going to wake up tomorrow we're going to go as, as and we're passionate about the same kind of stuff that we've been talking about today mm. what can we do basically okay so i'll give a few like very specific things and a few more general things to close i think um one really specific thing you can do is the lwa the land workers alliance has developed a, a website called amend ag bill amend the agriculture bill because yeah. there's currently an agriculture bill going through parliament and if brexit happens it will become law um and the Landworks Alliance, along with various other organisations, are trying to get four progressive clauses into it about the right to food and agroecology, local food systems, and I forget the last one. But your students can go on, can go on that website and, 
and support those amendments. Mm. Okay, um, that's what that's sort of one concrete example of what I call lobbying. Yeah, so food and farming policy doesn't exist in a vacuum. Mm. It is influenced by civil society, and people can be you know can be engaged with like what is going on with food and farming policy and go and talk to their MPs about it. Mm. Yeah, and they have a democratic responsibility to listen to you. You can. Obviously, like, just upskill yourself and become a bit more knowledgeable about your local food system, yeah? And, th- and that, the most concrete example of that is growing a bit of your own food, mm. you know? Even if it's just, like, growing, you know, a, you know, a basket of rockets on your windowsill if you don't have a garden. You know, it might be taking on an, on an allotment. Um, it might be setting up a food, food uh, buyer's co-op, you know, with a few friends and thereby, you know, accessing probably like organic or more ethically produced food but quite cheaply because you can do it in bulk hmm. okay um, there are obviously various ethical consumption sort of decisions you can make when just shop- shopping in mainstream shops like buying organic buying uh, fair trade for hmm. example um, you could become a the Landworks Alliance as I've said is a trade union based on farming membership but we also do have a supporters membership hmm. so you could become a member of you could become a supportive member of the LWA or you could become a supportive member of any other organisation doing stuff on food and farming issues. Mm. You know, all the big conservation organisations at the moment, RSPB, National Trust and so on and so forth, have, um, have like, they're, they're having a major impact on the agriculture bill too. So membership and influence of those organisations is also relevant to food and farming at the moment. Mm. You know, I spoke earlier about no a kind of a vague sense that food and farming issues are becoming higher profile mm. and becoming to mean more to people you know and if you look at Britain historically at the moment we've been removed from the land for at least 150 years even in the mid 19th century under 50% of us lived in the countryside and worked on farms okay so we are historically a, a society very removed from the land mm. But I get a sense that that is starting to change slightly. People are becoming more interested in food. They're becoming more interested in where their food comes from. And a younger generation of people who are more from cities, possibly university backgrounds, etc., are engaging with farming. So in the broadest sense, I'd say you can become involved in that very big, very slow cultural shift, Mm. Um, which is ultimately what we need. If we're going to create a food system that is not only fair for consumers, but treats the planet responsibly and mm. sequesters carbon and uh, develops biodiversity and all the rest of it, and produces healthy and affordable food that all of us can have access to. Mm. No, I think that's a really nice uh, note to finish on. Humphrey, thanks very much for joining me. Oh, thanks for inviting me. Lovely. Not at all, Hugh. Thank you for having me.